Welcome to FASD Family Life, the show for families by families, where we discuss parenting children and teens with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I am your host, Robbie Seal, FASD educator, advocate, and mom of four children with FASD. I know the struggle is real, but so is success. I hope that sharing my experiences can help you feel that you're not alone and that there is hope for you and your child with FASD. Please take a second to like and subscribe to FASD Family Life. Turn on your notifications so you don't miss any episodes. New episodes are released every Friday and are available everywhere. I encourage you to share the podcast with your friends, family, maybe your child's teacher. One listener posted a link to the podcast on her Facebook page. Thank you for that. FASD Family Life Podcast is available on YouTube. Thank you so much for all of the love I received in emails from listeners. I appreciated all of your comments and questions. You guys make this podcast amazing. I love hearing from you. We are all in this together. And you can come visit me at Robbie Seal on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for more great content. Here we are, my friends, episode number nine of FASD Family Life, the podcast for families by families, where we get real about raising children and youth with FASD. And I am so happy you could join me. In this episode, I will answer your questions and will explain how dismaturity can lead to challenging behaviors. In episode number eight, we discussed the primary disabilities of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Those are the areas of the brain that are damaged by prenatal alcohol exposure. And dismaturity is one of the primary disabilities. Our children and youth are not immature, rather the developmental delays are due to the brain injury. I would not be at all surprised if you told me that in some areas there does not seem to be much of a difference in your child's developmental age and their chronological age. And then in other areas, they act so much younger than they actually are. And that's exactly what we're talking about. Dismaturity is the gap between an individual's developmental age and their chronological age. So your 10-year-old may meet the developmental stature of a typical 10-year-old, but might have the problem-solving ability of a 4-year-old. They may be reading at the level of a 7-year-old, but reading comprehension and spelling of that of a maybe five-year-old. Their social skills may be more like that of a three-year-old who needs to be first, takes whatever toy they want away from siblings, and doesn't want to wait their turn. He may have tantrums like a three-year-old when he doesn't get his own way, especially at home. Yet he may have wonderful abilities in art, music, and or athletics that outpace those of his peers. I have posted some infographics that help us understand dismaturity on my Facebook page, Robbie Seal. I hope that you find them helpful. Another example of dismaturity is an 18-year-old, chronologically, who has a scattered developmental maturity, and it may look like expressive language of a 20-year-old, physical maturity of an 18-year-old, emotional maturity of a 6-year-old, social skills of a 7-year-old, time and money concepts of a 9-year-old, and living skills of an 11-year-old. In this instance, this young person would sound much more capable than they actually are in most circumstances. And you can see the tremendous vulnerability created by the developmental delay and how that would negatively impact school, employment, relationships, decision-making, housing, parenting, and so on. FASD is a lifelong disability. Individuals with FASD have strengths, 
and challenges, and will require accommodations across their lifespan. It is highly probable that an individual's ability to cope in any given situation will fluctuate moment to moment depending on internal and external stressors, so their functional or developmental age shifts. There are a number of things that can impact your child's developmental capacity in any given situation. Things like the time of day, whether they've had their medication, their five senses of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. Remember my story about the buggy socks? That'll send the capacity to handle stress way down. The environment, is it familiar, unfamiliar? Mental fatigue, familiarity of a situation and of people and of food, illness, headaches, menstruation, all compromise a person's capacity to manage in any given situation. And it's not easy, but we must always be ready to adjust our expectations of what our kids can do on their own according to their developmental level. When our kids are expressing frustration and overwhelm by way of shutting down, blowing up, running away to hide under a blanket, we need to step back, take a breath, give them a few minutes before we come back to them with, I see this is hard for you. What do you need? How can I help? One listener wrote, my husband and I are trying to wrap our brains around how to provide an accommodation or how to prevent our older daughter who is six years old and has FASD from being aggressive toward her younger three-year-old sister. The other day we were on a family walk and our six-year-old noticed that her younger sister was running ahead and did not like it as she always wants to be first. So the six-year-old ran ahead and pushed her little sister really hard who fell and got all scraped up. It was really heartbreaking. I don't know what to do about all this. We try consequences and it definitely doesn't work. We try praising the good moments and it does not prevent the aggressive behaviors. As I read that email, I was instantly transported back to when my kids were small and walking with my kids to the playground. Very often my six-year-old would compete who was going to be first, who was going to be in the lead, who would press the lights at the crosswalk, and what I hoped would be a fun walk to the playground was just a series of arguments, competitions, and complaining. Oh, the complaining. I remember trying a lot of different things, and I learned the hard way that consequences do not work, and they don't work when our kids are six or 16. Our kids' brains just aren't created that way. And additionally, the social, emotional, and problem-solving development is significantly delayed in children who have FASD. This is dismaturity. A good rule of thumb is to consider your child's functional abilities to be more similar to a child about half their age. In this case, the six-year-old sister is demonstrating behavior that you would expect to see in a two- or three-year-old, not a six-year-old. Understanding the developmental delays we see result from the child's brain injury really helps parents and caregivers to make the necessary paradigm shift to brain, not behavior, and set in our minds kids do well if they can. The six-year-old is demonstrating she needs help to do well engaging with her younger sister and with taking turns, as do all two- and three-year-olds. Along with dismaturity, that is developmental delays, Children with FASD are also highly impulsive, so they act without thinking and cannot foresee the outcomes of their behaviors. 
These are symptoms of FASD and they require accommodations and prevention across the lifetime of the individual. Believe me, little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. It may well be that this little girl, though she is six, has the social skills of a two or three-year-old, which would explain many of the challenging behaviors the family is experiencing. Additionally, it may be that this six-year-old doesn't understand what she is supposed to do in a given situation. She may be unable to pick up on the clues in her environment that would tell her what behavior is expected. She may need to be primed before each activity as to what behavior you are expecting. And be sure to catch her being good and praise her when she tries. FASD significantly impacts memory. So though you've stated the rules many times, she may not remember them. Also, her inability to generalize information, rules, and learning from one situation to another is also a primary disability. So knowing when and how to apply the rules to inhibit her own behavior will always be an area of challenge. Typically, our children with FASD simply do not know what they are supposed to do when we tell them to stop doing something else, and they cannot figure that out on their own. That's why stop messages don't work. Stop pushing your sister doesn't tell the child what is more desirable. We need to use do behavior. So walk nicely, hold your sister's hand. It's your sister's turn to lead, you can lead next, will be ways of telling her what is expected. Prevention is key because individuals with FASD do not learn from consequences because of the deficits to memory, generalizing information, linking cause and effect, receptive language delays, concrete thinking, all of which are primary disabilities. And consequencing or punishing a child with FASD for these deficits would be akin to punishing a blind child for not reading or a deaf child for not listening. And a timeout will have no benefit. The child with FASD will feel slighted for being picked on because they really cannot link a punishment with a previous action. And I know I've tried this many times and failed many times. I like having a game plan. I find it helps if we identify the situations that are so challenging for our kids and we know what they are, they happen time and time again. And then we clarify for ourselves what is the desired outcome. Is it a walk to the park? Is it a safe walk to the park? Or is the goal that the girls get along nicely? So we have to clarify what is the desired outcome and then plan backwards through the steps to identify what structure and routines are necessary those are the supports, to build bridges of support to make it harder for our children to fail rather than to succeed. I'm going to say that again. Then plan backwards through the steps to identify what structure and routines are necessary to build bridges of support to make it harder for our children to fail than it is to succeed. I used to have my three little ones with FASD take turns being in the lead as we walked to the park. One would lead for 10 sidewalk blocks and then we would all stop so that the next child could take the lead for the next 10 sidewalk blocks and so on. I found incentivizing the desired behavior helped a lot too. So I might have some cookies, fruit gummies, or some other small treat at each leadership exchange along with copious amounts of praise to help the transitioning go more smoothly. And the bonus was we all got to practice counting to 10 over and over again.
My goal was safely walking to the park with my children. The structure was the stated expectation for the expected behavior before we departed. The routine was taking the same route every time and maintaining the practice of one person leads for 10 sidewalk blocks, we all stop, we switch leadership, and repeat. Routine is doing the same thing the same way every single time. Another pinch point for us was the fight over who would press the button at the crosswalk. In order to prevent the fighting, I set up a routine that one child would press the button for the crosswalk on our way to the park and the other child would press the button on the way home. Prevention is the key to reducing unwanted behaviors for little kids and big kids with FASD. And we prevent by maintaining close supervision accommodating our children where they are at developmentally, not chronologically, erecting the structure of stated expectation and close supervision, creating a routine so that we do the same thing in the same way every single time, and praising the desirable behaviors. Because our children have a brain injury, they are impulsive, forgetful, and unable to make connections between cause and effect and are developmentally much younger than their chronological age. So in order to reduce frustration, we must meet our kids where they are at and adjust our expectations of their behavior and their capacity to handle stress or frustration to their developmental level, which may be half their age or less at times. The behavior that is driving you or their siblings crazy might be right on target for this developmental level. Many parents have asked me about bedtime challenges. It may be that their 11-year-old who is boldly riding her bike around the neighborhood during the day is fearful and anxious when she is alone in her room on the second floor of the house at bedtime, especially if her parents are watching TV in another part of the house or working on a project in the garage. As parents, we might feel frustrated and limited by our child's neediness and say, man, she should be able to go to bed on her own by now. She should know better by now. I'm always here. But when we consider developmental stage versus chronological age, it makes a lot more sense. We know that three or four-year-olds need their parents close by in order to feel secure. And we can prevent undesirable behaviors of calling for mom and dad, crying, coming out of their room, bugging siblings, or getting into mischief by being nearby when the child is awake. And talking it out or reasoning it with your child won't help. Remember, concrete thinker, developmentally younger, receptive language delays, so they don't connect every word that you're saying. Additionally, anxiety and fear makes reasoning impossible. Not to mention that the child is tired, so their capacities for mental processing and emotional regulation are even further diminished. Instead, we can maintain close supervision and proximal support by being nearby, We can accommodate where they are at developmentally, not chronologically. We can erect the structure of the stated expectation of the desired behavior along with close supervision and create a routine so that we do the same thing in the same way every single night for years and years and years and praising the desirable behavior. So the evening may look something like this. Bath, then PJs, brush teeth and hair, hop into bed, story, cuddles, and then stating the expectation. Now you stay in bed and go to sleep. I'll be in the next room. I love you and I'll see you in my dreams. 
instead of saying goodbye, goodbyes can cause anxiety. It might be helpful to have this bedtime routine posted in your child's room as a visual aid so they know what to expect when they forget. And don't worry, it's not just your family. It's very common that children and youth and adults with FASD struggle with anxiety and anxiety seems to rear its ugly head once the lights are out at bedtime. Most nights we still need to be upstairs in our home to ensure that everyone is calm, settled and stays in their rooms. It should be noted as well that sleep problems are also primary disabilities of FASD. First step is to ensure that there is not noise in the house that may be keeping your child awake. Remember, some children have very sensitive hearing, so even a TV or music from another room may be distracting to them. Or maybe there's a lawnmower running outside, or a wind chime fluttering in the breeze, a barking dog, a sewing machine going, and so on. All these things may keep your child awake. Some children sleep better if they have a white noise in their room of a fan or a white noise machine. Others will be overstimulated by white noise. Some individuals with FASD may sleep better if they have a weighted blanket for deep pressure. Others are soothed by a very soft micro fleece blanket or special stuffed animal or their favorite baby blanket well into adulthood. Children and youth with FASD would benefit from stopping screen time an hour or two before bedtime, and that is all TV, games, phones, tablets, computers. Many people with FASD require supplements or pharmaceutical medication to support sleep. So if falling asleep, staying asleep, or disrupted sleep are problematic for your child, please discuss it with your child's doctor or psychiatrist. Another listener wrote to me asking, My kid with FASD leaves the bathroom without flushing the toilet. It's so frustrating. His siblings get so angry, but he does it over and over. Is this a thing? This is a common struggle for families, and there are a number of primary disabilities that may contribute to this reoccurring situation. Memory, sensory processing, developmental dismaturity, distractibility, whatever the reason, Prevention is the key to unlocking the door to the desirable behavior. And remember, consequences do not work. So maintain close supervision and proximal support by being nearby. Accommodate where they are at developmentally, not chronologically. So this child, let's say they're 10, well maybe developmentally they're 5 or 4, so you need to be close by. Erect the structure of stated expectation of the desired behavior right before the behavior along with close supervision and create a routine so that we do the same thing in the same way every single time for years and years and praising the desirable behaviors. Perhaps you could prompt the desired behavior immediately before the situation. Calmly instruct the child or youth to flush the toilet and wash hands just before they walk out of the bathroom, not when they go into the bathroom. We may need to provide the support by being close and giving that auditory instruction. Perhaps a visual reminder posted just above the doorknob or directly in front of the toilet as a reminder to build the routine of doing the same thing in the same way every single time. And in this way, we develop a positive pattern of behavior which over time becomes ingrained. And when you happen to find the toilet has not been flushed again, and you will, You can simply go find the child, address them by name, calmly tell them that they're not in trouble but they need to come with you as you walk them back to the bathroom. Then calmly instruct them to flush the toilet 
the child will undoubtedly protest. It's not mine. I did flush the toilet, etc., etc. Don't engage in the argument. Just simply restate, I need you to flush the toilet. You're not in trouble. When they comply, calmly thank the child for flushing the toilet. When we support our kids with a brain-based approach, building on our kids' strengths and our relationship, and by giving grace for their underdeveloped and unreliable brains, we can embrace our kids for who they are. We can't build a healthy relationship with our kids when we are frustrated and angry with them. Our children and teens need to experience us as steady and available to them and willing to provide whatever bridge of support they need to reach their full potential. Raising children with FASD is challenging, but we can get through it with grace, humor, and more than a little sheer determination when we use a brain-based approach. We can appreciate the beauty of a rose garden. We recognize that rose gardens require expert care and intention to grow beautiful blooms. The casual observer will note the variety of color and shape and scent and the size of the gorgeous flowers, but they may not take into consideration that beneath each of those beautiful blooms are a plethora of razor sharp thorns. But you can be sure that the gardener is intimately familiar with the thorns because he has sustained injuries on more than one occasion. But the gardener keeps going. He delights in the whole plant, not just the blooms. And over time, he develops new skills that will help him avoid the thorns more often. But the thorns are still there. I hope we can learn to be like that gardener. Delight in the whole child. Learn some skills to avoid some of the thorns and carry on to see our children grow up and blossom into the best version of themselves, thorns and all. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks for staying with me on this ninth episode of FASD Family Life. I'd love to hear from you. Please let me know if you found this episode helpful and hopeful, and please take a second to leave a five-star rating and a review because that helps others find FASD Family Life a podcast for families by families where we get real about raising children and youth with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Next episode will be my interview with Sandra Flack, host of Orphans No More podcast, executive director of Justice for Orphans, and author and mother of nine. I had a lot of fun and I know you're going to enjoy our conversation. I would love to hear from you. What's your biggest struggle? Email the show at fasdfamilylife at gmail.com and I'll do my best to answer it via email and on the show so we can all learn and grow because we're all in this together. Thank you for sharing your time with me. I know it's precious and until next week, remember, the struggle is real and so is success. I'll talk with you soon.